Well, happy Independence Day. It is such a tremendous blessing to be in the Lord's house today to worship with you, uh, to worship with the family of God, and to be reminded of the fact that we live in a country where we get to experience this freedom to worship that uh, the Spirit leads us to participate in apart from any fear of persecution or apart from any fear of tyranny that may uh, try to step in and keep us from worshiping the one true God. And yet we live in a wonderful nation that allows us the opportunity to be able to be here today and to worship with one another. And so we're excited you're here. We're excited to celebrate all of the Lord's blessings, including this wonderful nation that we live in. Uh, we recognize, we are reminded, especially on days like today, that freedom is not free. It, it came at a very high price. That is true of our nation. It is even more true when you think about our freedom from sin and the price that was paid through the sacrifice of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that gave his life so that we could have the freedom from that sin. But we should never forget the price that was paid for us to be able to experience this freedom, this eternal freedom and this freedom that we experience here in the United States of America. It's also important for us as believers to have the proper perspective on our great nation, the United States of America. And what is our appropriate relationship as citizens and patriots of this great country in order for us to do that on this particular Independence Day I want us to take a look at this question. It's a question that maybe you've asked before. It's a question maybe you've debated before. It's a question maybe you've heard people talk about before. And, and sometimes it's difficult to kind of flesh out. But here's the question I want us to look at today. And that is this concept here. Is America a Christian nation? Now, it's a little bit of a tricky question. Not because the, the answer is tricky. It's tricky because the question itself can be a little bit hard to determine what you actually mean by that. If you mean that the question you're asking is actually this, was America founded as a Christian nation, then the answer might be yes. In the simplest respect, it is true that the founders, by virtue of the fact that they signed the Declaration of Independence, believed in a God who presided over nature, who was the author of human rights, who would one day judge the dead and govern the world by his providence. The majority of the founders also believed that religion was necessary for maintaining moral virtue and assumed that the nation would, would in essence, remain culturally Christian. But that's not always what we mean when we ask the question, is America a Christian nation? That's only one way to frame the question. What if by that question you actually mean, is America made up of predominantly Christian citizens? Th then the answer is not quite as straightforward, maybe, as it is in that other way of framing the question. Demographically speaking, America certainly resembled a nation of Christians at the time of its founding, and to some degree, has ever since. But things are changing. And... If you're paying attention, not always for the better. According to Pew Research, over a 10-year span from 2008 to 2018, 
the number of people with a Christian religious affiliation is decreasing rapidly. The percentage of citizens identifying with Protestant Christianity has dropped from 51% in 2008 to 43% in 2018. The percentage of Catholics during that same time frame has dropped from 24% to 20%. But at the same time, the percentage of people with no religious affiliation, what researchers call the nuns, in other words, they don't have any religious affiliation, period, has increased from 14% to 22% from 2008 to 2018. So while we may be able to say that America is a nation where a majority of people at least consider themselves to be affiliated with Christianity, unless something changes, that will not be the case for too much longer. But those are only two ways to answer that question. And they're not the answers that I really want us to focus on today. Instead, there's another way to frame the question that I think deserves our attention. I think it's probably even more dangerous of a way of framing the question than anything we've looked at before. And that question is this. When we say, is America a Christian nation, many people mean by that, is America God's nation? This is a concept that's receiving more and more attention and popularity in our culture. But what does that question actually mean? Here's an answer from a sitting member of the United States House of Representatives. Just a few days ago on Twitter, they posted this statement. There have been two nations created for God's glory, Israel and the United States of America. We will glorify God. Now, on the surface, you may like that idea. But here's the problem. In order to connect those dots that that congressman actually tried to connect, you have to be willing to conflate the biblical identity of God's chosen people, Israel, with the current modern-day United States of America. But the Bible doesn't make that connection. Matter of fact, the United States of America is not even in the Bible. But plenty of people are doing that today. Why do they do it? Well, I believe that it's a misunderstanding of some of the Scripture verses. And one of those Scripture verses in particular I'd like for us to look at today that we hear a lot, especially around the 4th of July, is 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. That verse, you've probably heard it. You may have it uh, in your house on a, in a, on a picture, or you may have it cross-stitched on a pillow. But that verse says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. It is a very powerful scripture verse that we like to use a lot for the United States of America. But here's the major issue with this verse. It was not written as a promise to America. It was written as a promise to God's people, the nation of Israel. But in this hyper-sensitive type of setting where we try to conflate Israel with the United States of America, especially when it comes to biblical interpretation, it's very easy to blur those lines. But here's the reality. Israel and America are not the same. 
It's bad exegesis. It's bad biblical interpretation to conflate the two. But that does not mean that there's no modern day application of this verse for us. So how does this passage in its context apply to us and is it relevant at all to our nation as we celebrate our Independence Day today? Well, yes, the passage may not be about America, but it is about God's people. And in Romans chapter 11, just a few weeks ago, we were reminded of the fact that the Gentiles who receive the gospel are grafted into God's family, into the nation of Israel, the spiritual nation of Israel. So even though this passage may not apply to America as a nation, the principles still apply to God's children, which includes those of us who have put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what are these principles from this passage of Scripture? Let's look at this whole chapter, and let's look at it in context. And here's what I think we'll see. First and foremost, the first principle out of the gate for God's people is this. God's people must seek his presence. In verses 1 and 2, Scripture here in in chapter 7 of 2 Chronicles says, As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not hear the house, could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And so right out of the gate in chapter 7, we're, we're faced with the fact that Solomon has been speaking, the king has been speaking, the temple has been rebuilt, and in this temple, God's presence was there with God's people, God's chosen people, the nation of Israel at that particular time. But here's the reality of understanding that it's our responsibility as God's people to seek his presence because before you do anything else with this passage of scripture, you must understand this first principle. We exist for God's glory. That's why we're here. That's why he has redeemed us. We cannot be ashamed of our true allegiance, which is to first and foremost, above everything else, be to him. That's very important, especially when you're talking about how it relates to America. We must understand that as we pledge allegiance to a flag, we do not pledge allegiance to a flag above our allegiance to our Heavenly Father. Every promise that he's going to lay out in the rest of these verses is dependent upon us understanding that we exist for his glory. God wants us to show him off. He wants to be shown off by his people. He wants to be revealed among his people. He doesn't want us to make apologies for him. Think about it. What kind of man would apologize because his wife is by his side? What kind of woman would apologize because her husband is standing by her side? Not the kind of husband or wife that's going to be a husband or wife for very long. So any believer that apologizes for being a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ first and foremost doesn't understand what their real purpose for existence is all about. We exist to glorify God. To be ashamed of him is to not be a follower at all. It's not to be a disciple. It is to be a pretender. But we exist to show him off. He doesn't exist for us, we exist for him. And when we recognize that our true purpose is to 
uh, glorify God, then we experience God's goodness. It is a cause and effect. Here's why we're here. And when we do what we're here for, then God's goodness is poured out upon us. Verse 3 says, When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Here's the beautiful part. The more glory you bring to God, the more people see God pouring down upon you and the more they recognize the reality and the, the, the responsibility for them to surrender to him so that they might give God glory. And the more glory he gets, the more goodness he gives. This is how God operates. So it doesn't make any sense for us to deflect what is supposed to be his glory to anything else in any of creation. We must stop trying to hide where our true allegiance is. And this is not really the point of this passage of Scripture, but I do want to just kind of mention here on this Independence Day that I love the United States of America. I am a huge patriot. It is in my blood. It is something that I have always longed to, to be on display, but I do not love the United States of America more than I love my Heavenly Father. America did not save me from an eternity separated from God. Only the Lord Jesus Christ did that. And if we want to experience the true power that's going to be revealed in these verses that we're about to read, we must understand the implications that it has to have on our life. God healing our land is predominantly about his glory and not about our agenda. There are plenty of things you may think ought to be happening in America, but the most important thing that should be happening in your life, the United States of America, and all around the world is the glory of our God who created everything which is why god's people must offer him praise in verses four through seven this scripture passage continues then the king and all the people offered sacrifice before the lord king solomon offered as a sacrifice twenty-two thousand oxen 120,000 sheep so the king and all the people dedicated the house of god the priests stood at their post the levites also with the instruments for music to the Lord that King David had made for giving thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Whenever David offered praises by their ministry, opposite them the priests sounded trumpets, and all Israel stood. And Solomon consecrated the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord. For there he offered the burnt offering and the fat of the peace offering because the bronze altar Solomon had made could not hold the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fat, what, what do we see here? Here's what we see. God deserves our sacrifice. He, he, above everything else, we must be willing to offer our praise, our self. As Romans 12:1 reminded us a few weeks ago, our entire body, our entire existence as a living sacrifice to him. Being willing to give of our very best. Being willing to... Uh, offer the very best that we have. Here's the thing. The Christian life is more than just religious meetings and rituals. It's a lifestyle. Here's the problem for many of us. If you eat donuts all week long, every day, several times a day, but then you try to balance it by drinking a Diet Coke once or twice a week, 
then that's not going to help you overcome the consequences for your actions. That's not the way that works. So if you've operated in the world as though you were of the world for the entire week, and you try to make up for it by just showing up to a religious service once a week, praying a few prayers, singing a few songs, asking God then to fix the world or the land that you live in, is, is not just going to happen because something magical occurs when you pray this prayer. Coming to church might make you feel better, but it will not solve your problem. You need to surrender to the one who gives you the freedom from sin, and you need to ultimately recognize that that sacrifice of yourself, like Solomon, like everyone who was willing to bring their very best before him, to, to lay it all down. God, we everything we have, we have because of you. Everything that's good in our life is because of your blessing. And it all belongs to you. And we want to be a steward of what you have given to us. We recognize it's yours and we give it back to you. And because of that, we are willing to say, God, thank you. Because God deserves our gratitude. He doesn't deserve just lip service. He doesn't deserve just showing up once a week. He doesn't deserve just watching a video once a week or once a month. He deserves for us to give our very best and to say to him, we thank you because we know that it is you and you alone who provide for our physical and our spiritual needs. Verse 8 says, At that time Solomon held the feast for seven days, and all Israel with him, a very great assembly from Lebohamath to the book of Egypt, to the brook of Egypt. And on the eighth day they held a solemn assembly, for they had kept the dedication of the altar seven days and the feast seven days. And on the 23rd day of the seventh month he sent the people away to their homes, joyful and glad of heart for the prosperity that the Lord had granted to David and to Solomon and to Israel his people they recognize that it was all god they gave of everything they had for the glory of god they prayed they worshiped they brought praises unto him they sought after his presence and god responded by pouring out his blessing on them personally and on their land but ultimately, it was all because God had offered them promises and they were trusting in Him above everything else. Now here's the key, and this is why it's important for us to understand when we're reading the verse that we're about to get to. It is God's people who have received His promises. The difference for Israel was that they were God's chosen people. And we even learned later on in Romans that not everyone that was a part of ethnic Israel was actually a part of the spiritual family of God, Israel. But those of us who've received Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, according to Romans chapter 11, have been grafted into true spiritual Israel and benefit from the promises that God offers to us through Jesus Christ our Lord and the new covenant. It's what makes any of this possible. We've received his promises. What are they? Verse 11, Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. 
All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. Not of his own ability, because of what God was doing. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heaven so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, don't miss the context, when those difficulties come, verse 14, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray, seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Verse 15, now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. Again, this prayer was made in the temple of the Lord. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house, that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, doing according to all that I've commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne. As covenanted with David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man to rule Israel. It's interesting when you read a verse in context and you realize what is actually being said and you take a step back and you think wait a minute that that's a lot bigger than what we actually thought it might be about we thought it might just simply be hey listen if we just pray then god will heal the land if we just pray then god will give us the political uh winners that we want to have the government that we like he'll, he'll give us the right people on the supreme court he'll give us he'll give us a bumper crop He'll give us a nice stock market. If we just pray, then God will take care of these things. That's clearly not what he was talking about at all. He was talking about his people seeking after his presence, offering their praise to him and to him alone, recognizing their complete and total dependence upon him, and in light of that, him responding by pouring out his blessings upon us. These promises were made to those who humbled themselves before an almighty God as their father, as their God, and surrendered completely to him. And here's what happens. God blesses his people for faithfulness. But notice who this promise is for. Follow the steps throughout just the verse 14. Even without the context, you can see it in verse 14. This promise was for God's people. This promise was for those that were not ashamed of him. They were not ashamed of their allegiance to him. Verse 14, if my people who were called by my name, who are willing to say, this is who we are, this is who we serve, this is who we bow to, this is our God. We don't care what the world thinks of us. Because the world desperately needs to know. People that weren't seeking selfish game. No, they were bowing before a holy God, their God, and humbling themselves before him. Father, not my will, but yours be done. They recognized their complete dependence upon him. You see here, as they're saying, if they would pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, they were dependent upon God for power. They were dependent upon God for direction. They were dependent upon God 
for forgiveness. Those people are the people that will receive the blessings and the promises of God. He will hear them. He will respond to them. He will forgive their sins and He will heal their land. He will bless them. He will make their efforts for His glory to prosper. See, this is not about a nation. This is about a people. And the people were God's people. And He was blessing them for their faithfulness. But then God warns His people against unfaithfulness. But if you turn aside, verse 19, and forsake my statutes and my commandments that I have set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will pluck you up from my land that I've given you, and this house that I've consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And at this house, which was exalted, everyone passing by will be astonished and say, why has the Lord done thus to the land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this disaster on them. Here's the true history of Israel. That's exactly what happened to them. He gave them very clear commands about what they needed to do just to receive the promises and blessings that he was offering to them. And yet they still turned away. They still served other gods. They still served their own selfish ambition. They did exactly the opposite of what verse 14 told them to do. And here we are, God's people grafted into his family, still with the same promises, not as a nation, but as individuals and as the family of God with the opportunity to experience the great blessings of God, the power of God, the direction of God, as His Spirit moves among us, with the same opportunity to be faithful. But heed the warning. If we are unfaithful, then God, just like He did to the churches in Revelation, has told us He will remove our lampstand. He will remove our, opportun our opportunity to be prosperous for His glory. Not prosperous for our benefit, prosperous for His glory. Remember, we exist for His glory. Several years ago, Beth worked for an evangelist by the name of Wade Morris. Uh, we actually met him while we were at a youth retreat when we were both in high school. He spoke at that retreat. Beth, He and Beth met there, and they struck up kind of a conversation, and ultimately, a few uh, months later, she was going to be moving to college, and he asked her to come and work for him in his office, and so she did. She started working for him as his assistant. And over the course of the years, I've heard Wade speak many times. He's an excellent preacher, communicator, expositor. He has a great way of communicating with students and with the church body. But, but a few times I heard him tell a story about one of the camps that he spoke at. It was about a young man that was at one of these particular camps. And the story was, particularly for me, was particularly convicting. Now, I don't know if you've been on a youth retreat in many years, but they're not exactly the same now as they used to be, but one of the sort of normal, typical parts of a youth retreat was the talent show. Now, sometimes it would be on like the last day before the final 
worship service that was there, but sometime during the week they would have a talent show and it would give the kids all an opportunity to kind of come up and display their talents and have fun with stuff. Some of them did things together, some of them by themselves. Well, on this particular occasion at one of these youth camps, they had a talent show. Usually the guest speakers, if they're there, they're kind of sitting in the back just not really paying attention, even if they show up because they're not really speaking, they're just watching the kids do that. Well, there was one particular boy at this camp for Wade that kind of stood out. When it was time for him to display his talent, he walked down to the front of the meeting room in front of the entire group that was there. He took off his shirt. He took a jar of peanut butter and he opened up the top of it and he put his hand down inside that jar of peanut butter, pulled out a big handful of peanut butter and he wiped and smeared that peanut butter all over his face and all over his chest and all over his belly. And then he just kind of stood there and then he went and sat back down and that was it that was his talent it was super weird and ultimately after just standing in front of everybody and smearing peanut butter all over his body he became affectionately known as peanut butter boy but that's only one part of peanut butter boy's story It'd be really easy to jump to some conclusions about what this young man was actually like. But it's also important that you understand that somewhere during the course of that same week, Peanut Butter Boy came to faith in Jesus Christ. And not only did he surrender his life to Christ, but he had a burden for his whole family to come to Christ as well. So before he went home, he began to pray that God would save his parents and his siblings as well. Then he went home, and for the next year, that's what he did. Everybody just kept telling him, just pray for your parents. Pray for their salvation. Pray that God would do a great work in their life. And he went home, and he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed. Well, the next year he came back to their student camp, and he wasn't his normal, crazy, peanut buttery self. He was confused, he was saddened, a little bit angry at God because God had not saved his family. But over the course of that next week, he realized that for an entire year, he had been praying that God would send someone to share the gospel with them, that God would draw them to himself. And he said, you know, I realize on this retreat I've been praying for God to do something that God's been calling me to do the whole time. So finally, on that last night, he knelt down at the altar and he prayed, God, share the gospel with my parents. Send the gospel to my brothers and sisters. And God, use me to do it. Help me to be courageous. Help me to know the right words to say. Help me to be bold. And he got up off of his knees. And he went and got on the bus. And he went home. And he led his entire family to faith in Jesus Christ. This is our biblical application of 2 Chronicles chapter 7, 14. We have spent a lifetime praying 
that God would use others to heal this land. We have spent a lifetime praying that God would raise up politicians, that God would use the government, that God would prepare other people to heal this land. But we've got to start praying that God would give us courage, that God would empower us, that God would send us to do that work in this land. Here's a great biblical example of that very truth that we see in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, 14. Beginning in Acts chapter 4, Peter and James and John are brought before the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of their day, and they're basically being accosted because they're sharing the name of Jesus with the surrounding community. Peter and John say to them, uh, yeah, we've been in the presence of Jesus, and they recognized it. They saw that, and they knew that they were uneducated men, and they were shocked and astonished at how they were being used to sort of build up a lot of people in that particular community with this message about Jesus of Nazareth. And they threatened them and said, we're going to let you go, but if you continue to preach the name of Jesus, we're going to throw you in prison. Or worse, you got to stop. Well, John and Peter went back to their home church in a house with other believers. They told them about everything that had happened. And then in verse 29 of Acts chapter 4, Scripture says, And now, as they prayed to God, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Can I tell you something? The single greatest, most patriotic thing you can do for your country is to take full advantage of the freedoms that you possess and to leave this place to get up from this time together on this Independence Day and to go and be God's people. Be His ambassadors. Be His messengers. Be His disciples. It's what our nation desperately needs more than anything else not another politician it needs for god's people to do what only god's people can do to display and to pass on the gospel and the goodness and the glory of our god trust me he has promised he will notice and he will respond god's people have a solemn responsibility to be dependent upon a holy God, to be empowered by a holy God, to be sent by a holy God, and to share the message of a holy God. It is the power of the gospel that can change hearts, that can change minds, that can change families, that can change communities, states, nations, and this entire world. We've not seen it happen because we haven't taken the time to invest our lives in the mission of God, for the glory of God, to the ends of the earth. But that 
above everything else is what God calls His people to do. Here's a question for you. It may be the most important question this morning. It's it's not whether or not America is a Christian nation. Here's the real question. Are you one of God's people? Because if you are, this promise is for you. And what God can do through you can have a ripple effect on this entire nation if we'd be willing to be the people God's called us to be. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Father, thank you for the United States of America. Thank you for the opportunity to live in a nation where we are free to lift up our voices to you as individuals, as families, as a church family. We don't have to be afraid that we're going to be thrown in prison because of our worship and our singing and our reading of Scripture and our praying to you. But God, I pray that we will not be content, we will not be satisfied, and we will not sit idly by in our freedoms when our neighbors, when the citizens of this nation, when people all around this world are dying every second, separated from you, destined to an eternity, where they will never experience your goodness and grace. God, may we never sit idly by when you have called us to humble ourselves, to seek your face, to pray for your power. God, we pray that your will would be done in the lives of everyone watching, in the lives of everyone here, In the lives of those that we meet, your will be done. Father, thank you. To you be the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.